0: Then we started playing with the idea of potentiation with single set French contrast stuff. And doing a single set in French contrast is really not an extreme measure. That's been done before. So then I took that concept and found that the power output was pretty remarkable in the coming days from that. And I thought, man, we ought to to just push this theme out and see in some low-risk situations. And we found it to elevate performance physically and psychologically. And so... When I started doing this, I found that the guys that perform in crunch time, they just completely elevated in the one set approach.
1: That was Bobby Stoop, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor SimplyFaster.com in their store. That item is Exigen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exigen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest And you can strap these uniquely fusiform shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100-200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself, I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change, it, it's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power and it shows up in things like Chris Corfus being able to take time off an athlete's 10 meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So, you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Just over a month ago, I had the honor of having Coach Bobby Stroop on this podcast, We had a lot of questions to get through and we didn't quite have enough time to cover them all. So you could call this a part two, but I was able to get Bobby back on and we were able to knock out some really cool answers to a few of the questions I had. Bobby Stroop is the founder and president of Athlete Performance Enhancement Center or APEC and has directed human performance systems for nearly 20 years. He has worked with a full range of youth athletes all the way up to some of the top names in multiple pro sports, including Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. I first saw Bobby through his presentation on Track Football Consortium, and I am just continually inspired by his creative and divergent and holistic thinking and the way that he goes about training the athlete. On this show, we're going to talk about Bobby's influences and how he got to where he is now as a coach, some of the coaches that have influenced the changes he has made to his training. We're going to spend a good amount of time chatting about weightlifting, both how he handles heavier strength training sessions, how the placement of them in the weekly or monthly format we're going to get into his single set mentality such as doing a single set and no more of french contrast why does bobby do this and how is he linking this to elite athleticism we're going to finish the show by talking about bobby's views on upper body training as well as a really cool conversation on training the foot this was an awesome show and it was great to have coach bobby stroop back let's get on to the show so Bobby, it's it's really good to have you back. I know I had a lot of questions we didn't get to last time. It happens on a lot of shows, but I'm really stoked that you're able to, you know, come back and we we're able to get these last half of them out. And I'm sure I'll have more for you in the coming years. But I appreciate you being back here, man.
0: Man, I appreciate you having me. I had a great time last time. I'm always, like I said, I always learned a lot from your podcast. And I think there's a lot of things to get into. And I love your perspective on on some of these approaches. And I just learned a lot too. So I'm ready to dive in.
1: Yeah, let's let's get to it. I, Actually, well, I do want to mention this real quick because I thought it was funny. We were talking before the show and you when you sent me your schedule for this show, it says DJ Stroop Bob. Like what? what what's going on there? <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty funny. I, I, I could kind of see that. So what's uh, what's DJ what's the deal with DJ Stroop Bob?
0: Well, the most stressful part of this job is getting the music right for your training groups. And you know, I've been under fire in those areas before. And so I just ask an athlete to send his complaints into DJ Strewbob at I don't And then that kind of took a life of its own. And it's it's kind of a moniker that I that I hide behind from time to time. So
1: <laughs> it's it's I tell you, it's nice to have an alter ego in this business, I think. That's right. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast on um, just the art of music selection and making people happy and the optimal vibe and the you know whatnot. But I, I do think the strength coach will always not be without complaints. From somebody at some time on whatever's on the radio or the Spotify or whatever.
0: Hey, ethos is part of the job. You got to set the tone with the culture. And there's no doubt that knowing what gets your athletes going is part of your job. So I get it. But, you know, all of us deal with a little bit of criticism on that. And I like to have fun with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, that is definitely a fun part of the job that another way to be creative for sure. And I I totally agree with that. So some of the questions that I wanted to get to last time, and this one's like, an overarching question of sorts. And that's the idea that your training system is relatively unorthodox in nature compared to a lot of what's out there. What are some defining things that you feel you do differently than other coaches? Or maybe within that, you can also get to some of the big influences who have changed your mentality and training.
0: Absolutely. So I would say one of the defining things is we put movement first. And I think that that gets... I think that's verbalized a lot, but we, we really do it. We stick to that principle. So we don't just talk about it. It's a priority. And we spend the majority of our time on movement. If you were to divide up the percentage of our time, you're going to see the highest percentage based on the quality of movement that our athletes have. So in doing that, we don't give up the principles of human performance per se. But and I know many people will say we don't do strength work. We do strength work. We don't put it all out on social media because that's been, that's been done before but we nail it and we're able to do it in a minimal time invested. We've learned that you can do high level max strength work and have minimal volume on that in the course of an entire training curriculum over time and still get incredible results with a little less uh, of some of the the effects of of overdoing strength training that, that you really don't want with some of those residuals. And in my experience, the strength training is more effective when it's not overdone and we can preserve the quality of the movement and really, really focus on those processes. So, you know, as far as that influence, it's just a combination of hundreds of mentors that I've had. You know, it, it started with a guy named Tim Powers, who was one of the first speed coaches in the country. And then Dr. Nicholas Romanoff, who was part of the, the Verkoshansky and, and all those, those methods. And he kind of got pushed out of the Soviet Union and came down and just learned a lot of concepts from him. Not necessarily just on the running, but just how to approach the, the movement of the human body and uh, studying movement with animals and different things like that. And then, of course, there's been a lot of influence from Gary Gray, Vern Gambetta. Uh, Jenny Radcliffe is a hero of mine that I've been able to visit and, and see work. And and then you transfer into people like Dan Paff, who are just a, a legend and a treasure and a, a resource and just a Hall of Fame human being. And uh, just a ton. I, there's so many we could spend the whole podcast on that, but there's been a lot of people affect the, the thought process for sure.
1: I love that you mentioned just like studying animal movement. And as I go through this field and my career and I uh, interact with different coaches, the people who are extremely good at observing coaching movement will almost always watch animals move at some point. And I love that link to it. I was curious if you had p- had any thoughts or had picked anything up with anything in that realm, because, well, it's funny because I've, I've kind of watched it, but sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't even know this gets, it gets so com- complex and confusing sometimes, but I, I really uh, respect that. Well, maybe I'll ask you that first and then I'll get to what uh, the other question I have for you.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, when you study animals, you got to be careful because I mean, there's always strength coach guy out there that's going to tell you, well, you know, cats are not human beings or we're not rhinoceros. Yes. I understand that. However, You can see how these different animals with their physiology and their climate and their environment approach tactical movement strategies and technical movement strategies. And for me, in watching that, I think you can learn a lot about how to utilize gravity as a resource instead of relying on strength. Animals do not strength train. You know, they don't. So that doesn't mean strength training is bad, but just looking at pure movement capabilities and speed and power... I think it's an incredible resource for us that's, that's right there. And with, with all the things that are out there from a, a cinematic standpoint and, and from the footage that we have of different animals and different problems that they can solve, I feel like it's a no-brainer just to at least look at that and learn learn from it and learn what, what certain body types and animals can do versus what others can't and how to find unique signature uniqueness with our athletes and not shame it, but actually just figure out what problems they solve best. And, and I think, look, man, overall, you know, just seeing kids develop the last 20 years, that bottom up viewpoint has changed your mind about a lot of things that matter. Like knowing what doesn't have to happen in order for an athlete to become a pro is something that we can say we've seen, you know, over 40 times organically in six different sports. So I really love looking at nature and, and some of those things, and not, I don't want to be too fanatic about it, but it really helps me get back to, to center almost and saying, okay, are we being dogmatic about this? Or is this something that it's a, there's actually evidence based, you know, something that makes sense at our core?
1: I like what you said about using gravity as a resource. In some of my recent podcasts, well, my recent podcast, the one I did a long time ago with Coach Dan John, and Dan had particularly, put out the idea of using scarcity like you don't get xyz training tools and now you have to make do with what you have and if you're an animal or even a kid on the playground your your biggest resources are your yourself your body weight maybe some apparatus and gravity and I, if i've learned anything from darian bar in my years being mentored under him it's just how much we can get out of learning to yield and then i look at what gary ward has taught me in like yielding in 3d so, how can we twist the joints and work with gravity in 3D under high velocity to create as much adaptation as we can before it's like just whereas if we have the weights there, we just instinctively say, well, you're not strong enough to so just go, you know, just get better at that, just get better at that. Again, I think it's good to be strong but it's like if you don't have as much of that, if you if that's not as much of an option to paint over things, I think it just really forces you and again, I don't think animals are consciously, kids and animals aren't thinking about this, they're just doing it and their brains are controlling it all but that really resonates with me. Is, Using gravity as your resource. Like if things are scarce, I have myself, I have gravity, you know, I have 3D joint motion. So, I I really like that you mentioned it or put it that way.
0: I think for us too, man, I I really love to find fanatics in this profession and beyond. I don't care if it's a sushi uh, chef or, you know, someone that's fanatical about a certain methodology in our, you know, our profession. I think you can learn a lot about from fanatics. You know, that's like the polar opposite of nature, right? But figuring out, you know, some of these things, and like with Dr. Romanoff, just an incredible resource on someone that's built their entire philosophy around leveraging gravity as a resource, and and not even believing in, you know, the 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 concept of push. I mean, that there's just a lot you can learn from just that stance. And I've just taken an incredible amount of value from that. Not 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 necessarily just on, on running or anything like that, but in a lot of the incorporation that we do with a lot of our throwing athletes, there is a lot to be learned about chain reaction biomechanics and, and what's possible if you just open up your mind to some things that could be, you know, somewhat controversial or maybe you don't adopt it wholesale, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I like that you you mentioned like not really relying on push. Cause I think that's another easy thing. It's like just like you rely on, you know, strength or whatever. It's like, well you're not doing this well. So just push, push harder. Find a different way to push where Versus setting up the kinetic chain. Because I would imagine that if you watch, I mean, I don't know, I guess the output you may, might be variable in what you see. But if you watch an animal move, we just see, you see elasticity, you see a setting up and a priming rather than uh, any sort of forced or extended pushing phases or volitional pushing phases of things.
0: Yeah, I think at the highest level of sport, what we see is an execution of synchronization and timing that's mastery. And I think that no one at a high level would argue with that. And I think that's what you see in nature. And that is some of that process is mastering gravity in their body and space. And so it can't be isolated to some type of measurement. We get off of a table stretch or GERD measurement or, or a quad to hamstring ratio and all that. Some of that data can be useful. But when the rubber meets the road, we're, it's synchronization and timing and coordination and execution period and with the resources that they have. And people might say, well, biomechanically, this that, and the other, but how are they using what they have? To overcome you know, and, and, and excel in that problem. And I think as professionals in the field, sometimes we need to take a step back and realize that that's where our athletes are going to win and lose. And we don't need to forsake the other concepts of human performance. But the main thing should, at least in my mind, take a percentage of the time and th- that it should be valued as such.
1: Bobby, you mentioned you are touching on heavy weightlifting and the proportion of your program that revolves around that. And one of the biggest wholesale changes in my program in my, I mean, I've been a strength coach for about 15 years, but in the eight years that that was my full-time job and I'm just like formally going through this process was decreasing the amount of time that was dedicated to traditional weightlifting and 1R, 1RM strength, I guess you could say. Has that been a similar path for you? And if so, could you elaborate on how much time Tends to be dedicated to those bigger lifts versus some of the other elements. Or, or basically, maybe I could ask, what percentage does the time you have with an athlete break down to now?
0: It's a great question. So, the best way I've heard it put is by Dan Path, who said that race horses don't make good plow horses and plow horses don't make good race horses. And if you take a race horse and you have them plow for a while, they might not ever race well again. But you can always take a racehorse and bring them down and they could be the star plow horse at least for a couple of days, if that makes any sense. Now, now that I'm speaking in parable form and you've officially accepted that I'm ridiculous, I'll move forward with this (laughs) explanation. But basically, you know, if if strength is what you do most, your body is going to want to solve problems with the concept of solving strength and, and, and weight at that speed of movement. Now, velocity-based training has been around for a long time. It's not new. Now, it's been repackaged. There's new technology. There's different ways to measure meters per second wattage, you know, all this stuff. I like to keep it a little more broad. You know, what we know from strength residual research from a lot of the greats in this profession that have done this from Vermil on to just, there's, there's been a lot of guys, is that maximal strength, I'm talking that 85 to 100% load. You can get by on holding that for about 20 to 25 days. And a lot of athletes can go a little longer once they've built that strength base up. And so, what we found is that if we stretch that out and we schedule their maximal strength exposures to every three, two weeks is what I like to do, depending on if they have a sensitivity have certain body types that it crushes their CNS and they just don't recover very well. I might stretch them out to three weeks, but you pick a few core lifts and you just hit that every three weeks. So now every week you're going to do something max strength, but it won't be the same thing every week, if that makes any sense. And what we have seen is a jump in the maxes in which they can actually lift a lot more weight, but we don't have the residuals of them feeling like a weightlifter. And having to go through the central nervous system recovery and actual dynamics of getting the tissues prepared to go back to max speed and and some of these other things. And that's been a huge influence on that. And that, that concept is kind of the decathlon training approach and the rollover programming approach and some things you've seen in gymnastics. So for me, when I look at the velocity based concept, I try to keep it pretty simple. You know, that 85, 80 to 85 to 100% that max strength. You're really working on recruitment patterns and muscles. You're, that's what you're working on, the deceleration and resilient properties for the tissues. And you go down in that 60 to 80 percent, you're tying in a lot more of the central nervous system, and the tendon and ligament structures are working a lot more actively uh, with the central nervous system and the muscular system to actually produce that power. Now you get into that 40 to 60 range, you're sliding that scale a lot more onto those tissues that have more of an elastic component. And the muscles are not what we want to be our prime movers for speed. If we program our athletes to be that way, not only do they have higher risk, they're gonna perform at a lower level than they have capability genetically in their body. So making sure that we develop that 40 to 60% range, I don't care if you're monitoring meters per second with some of the great technology that's out there, or wattage, or if you're timing them on how many reps in a certain amount of finite time, there's a million ways to measure velocity and speed and push your athletes there. And then, of course, 40 to 20% that reactive, now you're, you're shifting central nervous system, heavy on the tendons and ligament structures and the tissues of the body that, that aid in the speed of those movements. And then, of course, at 0 to 20%, that's going to be movement. I mean, that is movement. That is speed and velocity. And really, you're looking for exposures that are neurologically faster than the movements that they actually do in the game. So we take all of this and we chart it out over you know, two to three weeks, depending on the athlete and the system that we're working in. And we make sure that their body gets exposure to all of these in, in the amount of time that we feel is appropriate.
1: I love that. And I love that. I, I really enjoy how you said, uh, like every two to three weeks. And I just think about this. It's like if, if that opportunity to go heavy is there every week, like athletes, like lifting is like a drug. I think Dan you mentioned is, has likened it to that, where it's athletes want to get better at it. They want to improve. And if you're just feeding them things week after week after week, they like, well, if the coach doesn't care, they're just going to go as hard as they can. What I've done in the past is said, well, just don't go as hard as you can. But a lot of athletes don't want to do that. They want to improve. They want to find something to get better at. I just had Steven Kotler on recently talking about flow states. And there's like this kind of 4% sweet spot where it's like, look, an athlete, they sometimes are going to want to get better improve more than 4%. But that 4% improvement is that sweet spot. And it's like, if you are giving an athlete a chance to lift heavy every week, they're going to want to go for that every week. But the changes that you're going to get over time might not be that good if that's what your strategy is. You're going to turn more into a plow horse. So, I love that idea of just, hey, every two to three, not every week or not twice a week, but every two to three, you're going to get this chance so we can maintain that balance of structures. I just think that is... A brilliant and a a well-balanced approach to giving athletes like when they do get it, they can get after it. It can be more meaningful. They can hit that 4% or whatever improvement. But I just think that's a good sweet spot, man.
0: I appreciate that. And I think, look, I, I understand that the fascination with weightlifting is, especially in our profession and in the private sector too, it's like, a lot of trainers want to be able to tell a dad or a mom like, oh my gosh, look, he's gone up 40 pounds in his, you know, his chain, you know, deadlift, you know, whatever, banded, you know, he's gone up to 1.4 meters a second. And it's like, I get it. I get it. Okay. But we have to understand that objective measures are just a part of this. And we have to figure out a way to make it not just about strength training and finite type of things and movements that are not, not dynamic enough to actually, Improve sport directly, and so you need those things. But you can't. Well, it's it's difficult because parents take it like candy. It's like, oh my gosh, look at this. This is proof. And it's like, well, this is kind of the easiest thing to do. I mean, here's some other things that we track because, like you said, you want to dangle that carrot, and it is a drug to see improvement. But acceleration tens, fly tens, woodway sprints, uh, bat speed, even bat swing speed, even for non-baseball players, it's spine capability, spinal engine. Uh, Versa climber, 10 second sprints, meter per second, seated max power row, max power uh, lifts, max power chops, glute bridge, five second holds, power squats. I mean, approach max vertical, counter movement, vertical, non-counter movement. I try to find a way to measure at least one thing a day that I get athletes and we hand it up, man. I, I got a, a WWE wrestling belt. And if they're the top on whatever we measure. They wear it, man. They wear it the rest of the day. I think you got to find a way to gamify it, and also it can't just be for the little fast guys. You know, there's got to be tests that are tilted more towards different attributes. You want the whole team to develop. And I know I'm getting into, I'm kind of spilling over to some different concepts, but you know that's kind of how we approach it: is trying to find a way to get them into what we're doing, even if it's not the attribute that they hang their hat on, if you will.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like the gamifying. I was actually thinking as you were talking too, I, about five years ago, probably the biggest shift five or six years ago I made or a, a big shift in my own coaching was to go get away from just straight seven-day cycles and get into a 14-day cycle where like every Friday was more the lifting, the heavier lifting day, but every other it would be strength. So, it'd be power, strength, power, strength. So, at least every 14 days, you aren't going pretty good. But I, I like what you mentioned about the 21. So, it's like even that athlete who might be super elastic and might get fried out a little more pushing them to every three weeks i I hadn't thought about that so I that's something I'm gonna make sure I take notes on and, and look and look at my own programming
0: I would use caution with that one I mean where we started doing that is when I had kids that we'd lift heavy and they just looked I mean they just looked terrible for about 10 days and I'm like my gosh we I can't have that you know I just can't have that so then that's when we started stretching out you'll know pretty quickly with those greyhound body types I mean it's just like they I've had a couple of pitchers that are relievers and running backs that were, it was so extreme that they would just have, it was like clockwork. Oh, groin tightness, lower back tightness is going to happen for the next four, you know, four to eight days after we pin them out. And they were really proficient lifters, like really good. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit trying to be dogmatic about this. And we tried it with those individuals and it was widely effective for
1: them. That's good stuff. Uh, so, with the lifting, still on the lifting train, but maybe this would be the opposite end of it. I know you've talked about Doc Yesus one by 20 single set, which yeah. that's what your TFC presentation, which was awesome, was all about. Tell me about one by 20 doc system, single set stuff. Where has that all came into your work?
0: Well, you know, the single set mentality, you know, originally came from a logistical situation with us, with power development, to speed, and kind of the situation we get put in with, <laughs> with uh, facilities management or, or being somewhere else that you don't own or work and, and whatever. Then we started playing with the idea of potentiation with single set French contrast stuff. And doing a single set in French contrast is really not an extreme measure that's been done before. So then I took that concept and found that the out- power output was pretty remarkable in the coming days from that. And I thought, man, we ought, to, we ought to just push this theme out and see in some low-risk situations. And we found it to elevate performance physically and psychologically. And what we started seeing is that our guys that were top performers that really can access that flow state, they go there. When I give them one set, they do not like that feeling of not being able to practice makes perfect, if that makes sense. And so... When I started doing this, I found that the guys that perform in crunch time, they just completely elevated in the one set approach. And the guys that we had seen not necessarily be themselves in those situations, they shrunk in the one set too and underperformed. And so we identified it as, you know what, this is a way to kind of attack a lot of different things. So we look at it as a psychological and physiological opportunity. To not put pressure on them, but put them in a situation that's realistic to sport, and make them perform at a level that is competition with their peers. So, you know, if you if we're doing miles per hour on swings, there's going to be a champion from right to left and left to right. And I don't care what you do, I don't care if you're a quarterback or what you are. If it's spinal engine work, somebody's going to be the king. And you get one shot, no redos, no warm up swings. And we have just seen there to be a great benefit from that. And you know, the backdrop of it initially was an in-season training for baseball and in gymnastics. And I have since then applied this to NBA and NFL concepts and consulting. And it's been so much fun to integrate this and play with it because I think we're, we're out there on an island that I don't know if people have done a lot. And it's, you know, Dr. Yeses with the one times 20 is one thing. But I mean, I've done one times three before. I've done one times one. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah, the, the single shot thing or yeah, treating it more of um, like, I mean, one by 20, I think is it is a single shot, but it's also more efficient, longer. It's a different stimuli. I think that's maybe a different, slightly different ballpark versus right. the mentality of you get one shot at this. Uh, I remember reading maybe three, four years ago, someone wrote an article on how they revolutionized their track and field four by 100 relay team by only letting people have like two attempts at a handoff in practice. Most times you look go to a track practice. And it's gonna be just keep going, keep going till you get it, keep going till you get it. And I mean, that, no, on on a level, that's I think that's okay, maybe in early learning stages and whatever. But at the end of the day, who do you think's gonna get the better handoff? The person who under the gun, you get one chance today, and that's it. Like, who can do it versus the person who? Cause I, it just makes total sense, and I like how that you've ported that over into everything. I wish I could go back in time for myself as an athlete because I was. The opposite mm. of that. I was the I'm gonna shoot around till I get this shot. And I and by myself and with no one guarding me even. I think that's the reason that was a huge hang up for me and my own conversion of sport is everything was I'm gonna make myself a better athlete. Sure, that's great. But it was through like all this calculation and and it was it was an expanded training regime. It was not crunch time single set stuff. And that was where I had I would oftentimes really struggle once the pressure and everything was, was on in the game. And so I I really appreciate that mentality. I, it takes me to like Christian Thibodeau and his neur- neurotyping ideologies. And you got you know, the type 1 and their type 1B that like the all-star, the gamer versus the type 3 who's like the analytical, I need to be coached through this. I need to know everything about it. That's not going to work in the game very well. I mean, you can prepare yourself. You can try to prepare yourself that way, but that's not how the game works. And so it would be interesting, like, yeah, the intervention process is someone who needs to be overly like who wants too much coaching and stuff like that. And how do you get them to be better at the single set mentality?
0: It can be difficult. There, There's no question that you have to, you know, ease your way into it. I, I think that the whole one set concept is, I just think it's incredibly realistic. And people that are overly analytical, they can be that way. And I think it's an... It's something that has to be satisfied. We have to help them with that. And I'm that way. But in the game, you don't, that's not the time. And we have to put them in situations where they don't get an opportunity to do that in the training in order to see how their body and their, their mind and their spirit reacts to it. It's been a lot of fun to see it and kind of see it transfer for certain athletes. And it's also been good to use it as more of a potentiation approach for athletes like baseball players that have to. You know their workouts before batting practice, right before the game. So if I'm monitoring their stress, a lot of their stress is from the workout, and I've got to minimize that. But I've got to keep some of those athletic attributes on the highest of levels, and I can't rely on the gameplay to take care of those things for me.
1: I like how back to you mentioned Stephen Kotler again, and I like the idea of one thing he mentioned that stuck with me. I think it stuck with me too because in my own like work as a, in writing and stuff like that, he talked about Ernest Hemingway. Like, when he reached the peak of his, like, writing on the day, when he was the most excited about it, he just left, like, the sentence hanging, like, mid-sentence, where that would drive so many people nuts. Like, I do not want to, you know, I'm on a roll, Can't I? I, I don't want to stop here. But then they would take it too far. Like, you know, I, I'm going for 4%, right, of, of improvement, and you just take it past that. And so, to me, it seems like a single set, amongst other benefits, it foolproofs the fact that this athlete is not going to take their CNS too far. They are not going to overtrain that element and they're always going to want more. They're like, oh, come on, coach, can I have another shot? Or it almost seems like that could be a thing too. I think about like bond or check or high frequency or factorization in the DB Hammer universe where you're like going almost every day or training yeah. every day. Maybe that's something there that would allow you to do that if you're really trying to compress and work on one skill like, all right, come back tomorrow. You can get your one chance tomorrow, you <laughs> know?
0: I think it's a great idea. I, you know, that's a really good idea. I haven't thought about it that way with his philosophies. That would make a lot of sense. You know, I think the Parkinson's Law idea really explains it from a psychological standpoint, in that the amount of time that we're given is the amount of time it will take us to, to perfect or complete something. And, and that's been a concept for a long time in the workforce. So when consulting happens with the business, uh, you know, it, typically you come back and you say, okay, you're not efficient right here. And then they'll bring out the Parkinson's law analogy and say you need to give them less time to complete X, Y, and Z tasks. And you'll find that they complete those tasks in that amount of time. I think just applying those principles to these athletes and letting them know, you know, look, the 10,000 hour rule that came from musicians and violinists. It's not an athlete rule. You know, it's not. The situation that you're about to be in competition, you likely have never been in that exact situation and you likely will never will be again. Exact That exact situation, and we've got to be more comfortable putting our athletes in those things, you know, being risk adverse, of course, but they need to psychologically go there and physiologically show that they can perform, and I think that's one piece of it you know obviously we're we're anchored in the physical development side as a primary for our job, but there's no question that that mindset is going to spill over into their practice habits, uh, the volume they expose themselves up to and that could affect the longevity of a career or even the availability in later in the game or the availability later in the season. There's a number of reasons, but those are among the top reasons for it.
1: I started my career in strength and conditioning, having a very manufactured approach to training. You're going to do this many sets and reps of this exercise. You're going to do it like this. You're going to do this movement prep first and everything with that. And Over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach, I slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered organic approach where athletes had more options on how to do things. They could express themselves. They could move with flow. We did more gymnastics. We did more games. We did more organic learning. I will never turn back on that. Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shilajit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guests on this show, Logan Christopher and his company Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. With uh, You mentioned like we're in the physical sphere, but I mean, it seems like that type of single set mentality obviously benefits the French contrast, things like that. But the, the more it seems like the more skill-based you can get, like the, the team doing the relay handoffs or the more coordinated it could be, the more game-like, then the more that'll just transfer over to, I mean, how do you try to infuse situations that are more sport specific or replicate those kinds of tasks in that, as opposed to just more, I guess you could say raw physical outputs?
0: No, I think we got to be careful in honoring our sport coaches that we partner with. You know, it takes a village to develop a high performer and it, it takes a village of people that are coordinated on some level, even if they don't have a relationship. And I think that, you know, you got to be careful putting them in two, two specifics of a sport type of situation. I like to a lot of times push as far away from that as possible so I can get more of an authentic type of response. But, you know, if I have Trevor or Patrick, let's say with Trevor and I'm I'm practicing fielding, you know, I may have have him turn his back and on the crack of a bat, he's got to turn and field the ball and I've got it targeted in a direction and he gets one shot at that exact situation and I don't let him go back regardless of, you know, the outcome or making him set up in a different position, different than his batting stance and making him solve the problem from there, different things like that. You know, I think we've just got to look at this thing from the standpoint holistically of what we're trying to affect. But with most athletes, I stay far away from skill acquisition type of movements, unless I have a relationship with them that I feel comfortable going there. And I'm aligned with the staff and the technique and what they want. And I'm holding them accountable on some regard in those things. But I look at my job, I don't like the term strength conditioning coach. If all I do is strength conditioning, then that would just make me sad. And I think being, us being labeled strength conditioning coaches is one of the problems that we have. Because when you go to meet with a GM or an athletic director or even a head coach, and they're like, okay, how much priority do we have on strength and conditioning? Well, probably not much because those two attributes don't affect every play and they don't affect the culture of everything else. What I look at is that we, we affect performance on a high level. I think people in our position should be valued as assistant head coaches, should be valued as assistant athletic directors. And I'll tell you why. Here's eight ways I think that we affect every athlete. Mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, nutritional, creative, tactical, technical, mechanical, and neurological. We affect every one of those things. And we are one of the only people in any program, in any sport, that can affect all those things. In fact, I would argue that the head coach does not have the capability or time to affect all those things. And so I'm just tired of our profession acting like we don't have the influence that we have and just chalking it up to strength conditioning. All these things that I see people complaining about on social media, it's our fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. It's y'all's fault. And why? Because we're acting like we're strength and conditioning coaches. And we're not. We do all these other things. Okay. What did I name off? Mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, nutritional, creative, tactical, technical, mechanical, neurological. That's 10 things. And that isn't even the beginning of it. And so we've got to start making sure that our influence is a lot more holistic. And then our value will start being a lot more obvious to the people that we work with. And then we can collaborate with our sport coaches. And our athletes on the levels that we can we can affect performance like we should. Now I know that's a hot sports opinion, but that's where I'm at. And I gotta read, you know, angry old street coach Twitter every day and it just drives me nuts. It's like that's why I'm not that's why I'm not going through all those hoops. I don't wanna do that.
1: Yeah, that was something that resonated with me honestly almost from day one. But I hadn't really mapped it out. And honestly, it was um it was Scott Prohaska and the six, his like six lanes of performance, which was the first time I'd any, ever seen anyone who really mapped things out into everything that he felt made an impact on the athlete that went just beyond the you know, strength and power and speed was a couple of them, but it was not all of them. And I, I think the more we can write these things out, like you have the eight, and we could probably do a whole podcast on that. And I will say one of the things that didn't resonate me from the beginning was like in my early internships was... Man, all I can do here is improve a wonder at max or something. At least this is the way it's portrayed to me. I coach lifts, I teach lifts, I improve wonder at maxes. Something is in my spirit didn't feel like I was that didn't feel complete about that if that makes sense. There's got to be more to this. And I think that the the early mentors that I had when I was in my early 20s, they just weren't I think holistic to the point that I saw was able to really see what was beyond. As I grew in the field, I was able to start to see more of those things. And it's been a blessing for me to see people like yourself and Scott like actually categorize them like someone needs to because I, like you said it's like the more we have this map the more that we can connect with other coaches with the same things in mind rather than it kind of being this I mean I think good coaches good organizations have it like they get it but the more we can map these things out I think it always helps because sometimes it can be difficult to really pinpoint okay this athlete you know, needs help really specifically here. And here's how we're going to do it. And here's my sphere of influence. And and knowing you have that sphere of influence too, like knowing as a strength coach, yes, it is more than just this. I, I also am impacting, have the opportunity to impact athletes in a lot of ways. And I, yeah, I think that we could do a whole podcast and I, I really love that. I will definitely be writing that one down.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I, Look, like, there's so much to do when it comes to an athlete in their approach and how you can help them. And I think that all of us have an idea of some coaches we think are bad coaches that are associated with high-level high, high level performers, right? I think without saying and mentioning names, there's there's a lot of people that a lot, a lot of the profession will frown on. So this is the way I look at it, is I don't care if it's a quarterback coach or a footwork coach or a strength and conditioning coach or a speed coach. Why are they having some correlation with success with athletes? I'm not talking about dropping in for two sessions and putting them on all their social media stuff. I'm talking about people that are truly with them in their development, and you know for a fact that they don't have a scientific basis in some of their training. Well, the way I look at it is they have to be good at some of these things. Maybe they're good at the mental, emotional, spiritual pen. Maybe they're good at the creative approach pin, or the tactical, like how do you approach the game with your body or the technical, how do you move your specific body or the mechanical of breaking up the biomechanics or the neurological, electrical. Those coaches are successful because there is something they're doing right. Very few of us are hitting every one of these pins. None of us are hitting all these pins perfect, unless we have a collaborative team, team from head coach across the at, you know, down to the culture of the actual office with the people that work there and all these things. So I guess what I'm saying is we've got to try to find some value in people in our profession that maybe we don't agree with, and figure out what part of this are they doing right, and then complete our circles and complete our sphere, if you will, as far as what are the levels we can actually benefit an athlete in ways and expand our ability and our approach. And I think that's the future, in my opinion, of health performance and player development as an umbrella. And I think that's the way it needs to be looked at. And I'm so tired of strength conditioning as the title.
1: It's powerful, man. I almost feel bad having to ask you a question not about that. Oh,
0: <laughs> come on, man.
1: That's good. It's good stuff. Like, I mean, because I, I mean, because I want to get to upper body training and stuff like that. But that's, I Whoa. mean, we'll have to come back and talk about that and get digging into those eight. Because it, it, just to me that's so empowering to a sports performance. I guess you call it strength fishing I, I mean, I, I do. I always kind of wonder what to call this industry. People who, work with, people who work with athletes on a holistic level. Okay, now come up with some names. Uh, right, but it's, it's empowering because, I mean, to me, uh, that was an early struggle as just feeling like, okay, I've, I've gotten these athletes stronger and what else can I do? Like, I want to do more in this space and I want to understand more of how I can be of service. And so, I think that just from a binary perspective, we would say, okay, well, there's strength and then there's, you know, oh, the sports skills, but that's the gray area. You don't want to step on the coach's toes and maybe that's not right. But I mean, to, to have it in those other areas and to be able to look at that, I, I just think it's really powerful. So, Maybe that'll be a, a whole nother podcast. Unless we just want to go, you know, an hour talking on this one. But I, I think that'd be a fun, another fun show to really kind of dig in, dig into. Let's do it. Well, I do have to ask you a few other questions about some other things, but I'm, I'm really excited to get your answers on this. Uh, when you were doing the video uh, for TFC, working with Patrick, I uh, really, and the baseball players, I really enjoyed the upper body training approach you have. I've really it's it's sad for me, but just recently that I've gotten into clubs and mesas and I got some Indian clubs about four years ago and But it's like the more you just think about even pronation and supination and free energy and the way we work, like yeah, why, man, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Anyway, sorry, I don't want to steal any thunder. Just tell me a little bit about your approach and evolution of upper body training for athletes
0: yeah, I think upper body training is a what's interesting to me with an athlete is your power is either generated bottom up or top down and looking at cervical spine relationship with the foot and the foot relationship with the cervical spine. And we all know about ground force reaction, all of that. So one of the things that I want to be mindful of is the relationship between that power from the ground, the pelvis and the trunk and the scapula. And then I think that the arms and the biomechanics of what happens with the arm is largely a consequence of what's already happened. Now, if you have cervical spine restrictions, there are restrictions that are communicating back down the chain, back to your foot. So what I want to do is always round out a process where number one, I have the tissue capability that I need to be able to harness the power from the upper body. But number two, that my athletes can move in space and move in sequence with what needs to happen with the power transfer. So the spine is an incredible piece of it, but the tissue quality is too. So there's a lot of basis to round out when you have a thrower or a swinger or a striker and those types of athletes, you cannot forsake the movement qualities they have to have for the muscles that you think you need to build. So you've got, and, and you know, the whole movements over muscles things. And I've heard a lot of strength coaches, I, you know, respect, say that it's nonsense. Well, you know what? I think you can ask some first-round pick quarterbacks if it's nonsense because when they quit being able to rotate their humerus, they couldn't They could one-hop a hitch after that. They couldn't throw the football. So and I think you can see in pitching some pitchers that got really vain and got into bodybuilding, then they couldn't do it anymore. So I think there's a, there's a line where, yes, that can be an extremist point of view and be detrimental, and then there's a line where if you ignore that, you're part of the problem as well. So that's kind of my blanket approach to upper-body
1: training. So along with that, like how have you been using things like maybe I'll like, I know weighted gloves I wanted to ask you about. I mean, maybe that's more specific. And I also like how you have like throwers, swingers, and strikers, like people who are basically like high velocity hand speed. But how do you use uh, like weighted gloves? And then also other things like, like maces or clubs or, you know, how have those worked their way in your program?
0: Yeah. So specifically on that, the weighted gloves are from a company called Power Hands and they, they they do a fine job. I don't have any type of business relationship with them. I just found that it was really good to weight the hand specifically because it sends more of an internal uh, resistance and there's more overcoming inertia when you have it. And it's not, you know, we all know proximal and distal, but when you have something in your hand, it's an implement. One, there's the compression and then there's the extended, there's the object. It's a different feeling neurologically for the body. So the gloves, what I like about it is it's more of an internal resistance feel. And I feel like the body from a neural standpoint responds a little differently. And I just like to use it because it's, it's incredibly convenient. I mean, there's field court and, you know, athletes that, you know, they don't, that they, they're going to try to skip down the weight room when they can. You bring those gloves out there and you get an opportunity to do some training on the field or the court and they don't know what they got in, but you, you know, you put three to five pounds on each hand and then you're doing some strength training. So shoulder girdle work, swings, uh, different things for range of motion. It's really good. We like to use them in the warmups and in the cool downs or indoor conditioning. And also, just if I have an athlete that I just need to make them more aware of what they're doing with their upper body and a speed standpoint, or maybe I feel like their thoracic spine isn't working well we're doing a speed workout, when you put weight on your hands, you're going to find out real quick if you have limitations here or if your spine can actually move. And usually, your body will relent and you're going to get the movement that we're asking for. So I think it's a great tool. As far as clubs and maces, got into that a few years ago you know, through some connections and friends and I. I attended a conference and, and was like, you know what, why not? I'm going to take this little you know, extra day and learn about this. And I, I really loved the application that, that is across really fitness and sport with those. Because what you're learning is to leverage the biomechanics of your body. You have to use gravity and skill in combination with strength and mobility. You can't even get in some of those positions with some of the club and the mace um, types of workouts and movements if your body doesn't have mobility. So I love that you can break up those movements into different positions that are going to help with stability. And then those things can turn into skillful movements that require a combination of mobility and skill, technically, and strength. And so we really love those. I think that exposing, I think they're good for some athletes. Some athletes aren't mature enough to use those. You have to have a level of maturity and awareness to swing things around and have things that can fall but we use the heck out of them. And as far as other implementations with weighted balls and things of that nature, you know, look, that's not just for pitchers and quarterbacks and I don't want to get into the whole weighted balls, bad weighted balls. Good. You know, look, people have been throwing things with different weights since the beginning of time. Every spear weighs different than the other one. Every rock weighs different than the other one. So some of y'all are a little ridiculous on your logic to, you know, your absolute thought on it's bad or good. I think that's outrageous. However, some people biomechanically shouldn't do it. Some people should. And I think there's levels to it. There's backward throws, there's holds that are going to create more density. I uh, learned a lot about those through the research on Tom House's thought process. You're talking about density under the scap and compression abilities and things like that. studying tennis players, then if you actually throw something, you need to have hit a certain or checked a certain number of boxes to be able to get to the point where that's even an appropriate thing for an athlete to do, in my opinion. And we have forms and evaluations of, you know, weighted balls are a good option for this athlete or not. And if they don't pass those things, I don't care if it's the best thrower that we have. It's just not the option that we're going to use for. Them. So hopefully that breeds a little bit of explanation into kind of how we approach the, the weighted implement, implementation side.
1: Oh, yeah, that's really helpful. So, what are some of those things on the checklist for you should not be throwing heavier weighted balls? Like, what are some of those contraindications?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you have a scap density problem, you've got a divot. If you've got bicep tricep volume that's out of whack, probably not a good idea. You don't have good motor control of your scaps. And I'm just talking about from a scap push up standpoint, there are some things you can do. And look, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's biomechanical model, right? If, if you don't fit in a technical model proficiently from a standpoint of you're really far behind. And I don't want to get into like pitching coaching and throwing and all this, but if you're really far behind and your arm is lagging behind, it's not a good option to weight that even further and create more stress that you're already trying to fix, right? So different types of throwers and different types of sports, if they're not close to a biomechanical marker that their sport coach believes in or agrees with, it's not an, a good idea to, to add strength onto dysfunction or to you know, to be honest, speed up the deterioration of a movement that is already maybe not not a natural thing that the human body was, you know, let's just say born to just automatically do.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like what you said about we grew up, I mean, I watched my son at the river, like, and he throws, you know, he's just trying to throw all sorts of different rocks. Like, is it really their one like set rock? Sometimes they'll try to throw one that's a little too heavy. I'm like, okay, maybe you don't want to try to throw that one. But, you know, it puts your elbow in a weird position. I mean, he'll figure it out. You know, the kids are resilient. It's not like it needs to be even probably there to say that. If you try to throw a rock that's too heavy and you figure out pretty quick that your arm shouldn't go that way. But I just like, I love that illustration you said, like we become robust by exploration and just like how parkour is good for a lot of things. Just exploring and movement is, I think it's pretty similar. And so, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I. Uh, my own experience with like the maces and clubs, like really, it's been the last year I've been messing around with those a lot and doing a lot less, like just benching and even push weighted push ups, just more rotation and spiraling and a little less traditional. And I was just throwing the football at the gym the other day and I couldn't, I had a snap on it that was like myself 10 years ago. Like it was just like, man, where did this come from? This is awesome. I, I was playing a little bit of, I'm not really trying to think of the word here, not really a hillbilly, but I, I like playing disc golf. And from time to time, like once a year, and I last time I played too, I couldn't believe how far that thing was going. Like just that, I guess it's like a reverse swing or something like that. Like that motion too was really a lot more powerful. So I, I felt I'll have to try the weighted gloves though. You said those are three to five pounds, or what is the weight on those?
0: It depends on the sizes you get, but I think there's there's different ranges in sport targets as well. So you know, doing those with slow motion move, like if you want to be really really technical and mechanical about something. You can do really slow motion skill acquisition stuff and hardwire those things neurologically. There's just a lot of cool things you can apply with that. Now, I will go ahead and say this so no one gets me in trouble. Do not put these gloves on and go throw a bullpen or do a practice throwing. You do not do the actual skill (laughs) with the gloves on. Do not get me in trouble. And I'm also not saying that these gloves are something that replace bungees or dumbbell routines that have also been proven to be very therapeutic. I think your body needs exposure to different types of resistance, internal, external, distal, proximal. There's a lot of ways you can expose a shoulder girdle and the spine to implementations. And I think variation is your friend when it comes to those things.
1: Yeah. If I can maybe get some videos from you on some of the different movements, I'd be curious what those are. I think I saw Patrick doing uh, some in your presentation, but I'd be curious to get a few of for video just because I... It'd be if it's not obviously the you don't want to throw a baseball with a three prong you know that would probably no not work please, out don't do well. yeah. please don't do
0: that please don't do that
1: so um, all right so hands I think hands training the hands fits with training the feet so I do want to get into train the foot a little bit before we our time is done and one of the things I that interests me well a lot of things intrigued me about your approach to train the feet but you mentioned like calcaneal eversion like tell me. Some of the things, the basic foot functions that you want to see an athlete do before you really start elevating the the foot training and everything else that's happening.
0: Well, before we do that, let's just get this out of the way, okay? Obviously, I am responsible for Patrick's injury. Everyone has reminded me of that. So, <laughs> so you're getting advice from someone that has been labeled as messing up his foot. Not and not to not to bring light to that, but I, you know, there is a lot to train in the foot, and there's a lot of things that you have to be responsible for. And I think you know attrition injuries and things that happen in the feet are definitely our responsibility when things happen acutely and there's contact injuries and there's things that can happen, there's just a lot of complexity in there, right? And of course, I was joking about the former, but I think you know when you when you look at the foot, it's complex there's twenty six bones they magically work together, and it's a it's a combination of gravity and sequence and timing and synchronization that it, that's it, just an incredible you know, part of the human body that's that's just it's magnificent. So if we look at it, a lot of it has to do with heel inversion eversion. Okay. So your calcaneus is kind of shaped oddly. It's not a it's not an actual circle. It's offset a little bit and it's made to be offset so that it can shift. So your heel and that that that's why parents will annoy me with the whole well they're flat footed and we need to fix it. Well, if you don't, you don't want to fix that because they're going to go through the formation of how that calcaneus is supposed to be formed. That's part of the human development process. Well, when your foot hits the ground, or even if it doesn't, there should be a shipping of the calcaneus. It should evert. That means slide out. When it slides out, the talus should drop in. So you have your your subtalar joint, and your talus should drop down and in. When that does happen. Your metatarsal joint, a lot of those bones that that were mentioned, are going to loosen so that you can have force absorption. Now, that force absorption is meant so that your body can start to utilize gravity as a resource and move across the foot. Now, at the same time that that is happening, the tibia is rotating and it's going to rotate internally. When that happens, your posterior, well, first your Achilles and all those soft tissues start to begin a stretch, then your solus is activated, your hamstrings attached to the fibular head. So then the femur starts to rotating internally. And then as your, your body is absorbing all that force with the foot and your hip moves over the foot, now that calcaneus is going to do what? It's going to invert. Once it inverts, now the metatarsal joint locks. So this is where you talk about the foot having pressure around that outside ridge and that outside ridge is going to create tension all the way up the body to where you can get that extension naturally. Now, when that happens, instead of internally rotating with the, the tibia and the femur, now they externally rotate. When your body moves across the foot, they externally rotate, and then everyone, that's where everyone gets the glute activation. Well, yeah, the hamstrings pull the knee back, and then the glute is going to help with the extension of the hip. And that is a 30,000-foot view on you know how the foot kind of works and the problem with that is if you isolate the foot and look at it, you know, statically on a table or on some kind of balance board or, you know, I've been targeted by a group that's big on this slant board and you know, it's like, you got to get people in this position. It's like, okay, well, when you move, it's a little more dynamic than that. And let's just say, for instance, that an athlete has had trauma where they've had fractures in their feet or broken ankles. That process I just explained could happen a million different ways. And 1 million out of 1 million could be inappropriate in biomechanics, but it's the biomechanics they've got. And the example I'll give you is this. If an athlete has scoliosis, you can't exactly be hard on them about what their RDL looks like. You know, you got a problem and I don't care what Twitter coach in the world is out there. You're not going to fix that problem, bud. And then I'll go back to the foot and ankle stuff. You got that. It's just the same. It's like if you're driving a speedboat down the ocean or across the ocean and there's a lighthouse in your way, Well, you can say, I should be able to go fast right through this all you want. You better go around that lighthouse. You can smash right into it. Same thing with some of the physiology. So we got to be really careful trying to Twitter beat people that we don't think their athletes have good biomechanics because we don't know. We don't know what's in there. We don't know what's on with the shirts off or when the socks are off. We don't know what's in there. So we got to be careful in attacking people. You know, there's so much you can do with the foot. And it starts with understanding the, that physiology dictates technique, not the other way around. And yes, there's neurological things you can do and you should do, but you got you to know, know that some things present different issues.
1: So when, when would you make the decision to say, okay, like, a, like an athlete's calcaneus isn't, doesn't appear to be averting or sliding over, using like wedges to help create like space? Like what's your, what's your strategy for starting at that link?
0: Well, we like to set them in positions and do drivers to try to get their body to make those alignments authentically. So let's say someone's not loading on the outside of their foot very well. You put them in position. We, we do a lot where we try to get their shoelaces down and get people to load and kind of spiral formations and 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 all those things that we've been doing for years. But that doesn't fix your problems. You know, you get them in a position, you try to do different drivers that's, that help you see their loading patterns. But then you go back and you look at their physiology and you know, no matter, even if it's bad, look, here's the deal. An athlete, you may want them here. Okay. You may want them here. They may be performing here. They may have started with you way back here, but Twitter coach is only concerned that you're not getting them here. So you're a bad coach. Here's the problem is even if they're bad, you got to try to push that line. And so that's why some athletes require daily maintenance on these things. And our athletic training staffs are so valuable. And some of these people that are part of these teams are so valuable and then we've got to get everybody on the same page with this because those tissues can vary from day to day, and it's a neurological thing. And the neurology of that is on a three-day timer about. They can kind of go, go to crap in three days. So those things have got to be – they've got to be revisited, and they've got to be put as a priority, and they've got to be, they've got to be approached consistently, or you, your athletes can be in a deficit, and, boy, it can happen quick. So you got you got to really be on it. You know, I think that the, the physiology standpoint of – the calcaneal glide can get better, right? It can get better and it can get worse. Cleats are always a problem. None of them are made well. I don't care what brand. Custom shoes are better than not. Toe boxes are better than not that are that are hard in certain contact sports. But, you know, it's a complex thing, Joel. obviously don't have this figured out. I, I just think it's something we all need to be top of mind and, and concerned with. Because when the foot has a problem, the rest of the body is at a high risk. And if it's not at a high risk, it's at a detriment from the standpoint of how, how they're going to move and perform and holding them back from performing on the highest level.
1: You mentioned using a driver. I could see what you're talking about when you had a video, but could you just define that real quick for people who might not be familiar?
0: Yeah. Let's say you get in a deep split stance, lun- split stance lunge. And let's say I'm having issues with frontal plane loading and, and let's say various valgus knee stuff, whatever. Everybody knows you want to try to prime and load that half movement of the foot and be stable. And there's full foot. Full foot contact has a lot to do with the velocity in which you're moving. When you're moving less than five meters a second, you know, you're going to have more foot contact than if you're moving above five meters a second. With that being in mind, you've got to create some type of authentic movement that's going to put your athlete in position. So anyway, they're in a split stance lunge position. Let's say right leg forward. You take your arms, you rotate your spine towards the left. You swing your arms as hard as you can to the right. Now, that's an authentic driver of someone either hitting you or you're going to make a break in one direction. Now, you watch the foot and the ankle and the knee and you see, what is it doing? Well, if you see a loading pattern that's not good, that's probably more realistic to what you're going to see in the game when they try to solve a problem rather than putting them on some kind of slant board or doing some kind of witchcraft drill and saying, well, we're hardwiring. Well, no, you're hardwiring them to do that. You don't really know. So... I think that there is ways to use those stages authentically. And then obviously you can do more high risk things like having them go solve problems in space. So we do a combination of a lot of those. Uh, The drivers we use are a lot of that is sprinkled into our training or done in the warm up or cool down.
1: Cool. Yeah. I I know when I saw you, first talk about that i was like oh that makes sense like in uh, the sense of um i remember even just like a lateral leg swing against the wall the leg swinging is a driver for the leg that's planted or
0: absolutely
1: yeah one of my favorite ones is just doing like standing hip circles where you're standing on one leg and then the other leg is just doing circles in the air in different positions and that gets my intrinsic foot muscles way more than just standing on that leg which you know just the other one held up in space or something i so when you said that as a driver, I'm like, oh, that I knew there's a term for that. Like that makes sense. And then how you're using it integrated, but I was just thinking about the foot. Like I hadn't really thought about it beyond the foot. So I, I like that you know, the lunge example and more being more integrated and just using perturbation. I, I think when we think about perturbation a lot too, it's like you know bouncing off a physio ball or something like that. It. No, it's like yeah. it's more. It's actually more simple than that. So I, I, I like that example.
0: Gary Gray and David Tiberio introduced me to the concepts of drivers and it's incredibly complex and a deep rabbit hole, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's something that doesn't, it's anybody can do it. You don't need equipment. You can do it.
1: Yeah. It's a good concept that I think you could take. I mean, again, I <laughs> these podcasts will be awesome if it was all like, you know, live video. And we, we had a lot of these, um, at, you know, full instructions. I know we can get some stuff in the show notes, but really just, I mean, again, every, every time I talk to you, Bobby, this is like, game-changing stuff, so much stuff to to play and experiment with and to see real-time how this is impacting an athlete and how it transfers to the game. So, it's always good talking to you, man. I, I had one more question, but I know it would take us a long. It'd be a big one. So, I'm just going to leave it there. Hands and feet, it's a good one to finish on. But thank you so much for your time today, man. I, I really, I love talking to you and your approach to training athletes has helped me a ton. So, I'll be definitely messing around with this stuff in my own training and I appreciate your time.
0: Joel, it means a lot, man. I always love coming on and I love learning from your podcast. And looks like we gotta we gotta tee up that part three. Let's get it done.
1: We do. Yep. I'll start the, the questions now. So we'll we'll get it done, man. I'm gonna be happy to have you back. So thanks again, Bobby. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you having me. That finishes up another episode. It was great to have you guys and it was awesome to have Bobby back on the show. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.